Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and our guests today are Joanna Moore, Emergency Medicine Physician from uh, Hennepin Healthcare, and also Wayne Kiewicz uh, from the Minnesota Firefighter Initiative. And we'll welcome them in a second. But first of all, of course, my co-host, Hilary Gates. Hi, Rob. Hi, Joanna and Wayne. I am so excited to have you guys on the show today to talk all things resuscitation and how we can improve our cardiac arrest survival. I'm ready. But I guess we need to start off with uh, Wayne's story. Wayne, welcome to the MS Educator podcast. Set the scene with your story. And of course, we'll then get, get into cardiac survival from there because you are the poster child of this particular edition. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. July 1st of uh, 2020, I suffered a sudden cardiac arrest at home. I was a fire chief of a local fire department and had some chest pain as I was taking the garbage out to the curb, and then it all went away. And no other signs or symptoms, no diaphoresis, no shortness of breath, nothing, no radiating pain. It just all went away. And you know how we are as uh, first responders and healthcare professionals, the last thing we want to do is is call for help when we need it because we think we know better. And obviously I didn't at that point. My wife found me in my chair at about 8.30 in the morning. And fortunately, we live very close to the Edina Fire Department and we work very closely with Edina Fire, Richfield Fire, where I was the chief and Edina Fire work very, very closely. So I know most of the Edina firefighters. Uh, the lieutenant on duty recognized my address, dumped the station I had I had five paramedics, well, actually I had seven paramedics on scene plus three police officers. My son started doing hands-only CPR on me. I had trained him in CPR as a, in, when he was a Boy Scout. Both of, all of our family knows CPR, obviously. He started doing hands-only CPR. I got shocked once, I was in VF, shocked once in the house. And then they started to do the neuroprotective bundle of care uh, including a head-up CPR with a positioning device. They took me out into the ambulance, shocked me again. I met the criteria for ECMO, so they were going to take me to the University of Minnesota. And uh, I came to after that second shock. I regained consciousness. And the, the first thing I recognized was that I was in the back of an ambulance. Uh, the, I've had four cardiac arrests since that first one, total, total of four. And in each one, the, the first sense that came back after kind of regained, not regaining consciousness, but consciousness in your mind was sound, hearing. Uh, and I, I, heard the, I heard the siren, I felt the rocking, I heard the medics talking. And after being in the back of an ambulance, I don't know, hundreds of times in my career, I knew exactly where I was. And it was, I didn't want to be there, but I was happy that I was there and I was happy that I had woken up. So I looked up at the the medic and I said, did I have an arrest? And he goes, yeah, chief, you had an arrest. And that's when I dropped the F-bomb. I got a little uh, little perturbed and I said, oh, bleep. And then uh, next thing I know, I went back into VF. So I was conscious at this point. They turned the Lucas back on. They pushed some fentanyl and they're getting ready to shock me again. And I remember the medic going, hey, chief, this is going to hurt. And bam, I got I got hit with the defibrillation. And I'll I'll be honest, it it hurt a lot. So I dropped the mother bleeper at that one. 
And so I was giving the, the medics a pretty good grief in the back of the back of the ambulance. And but I was thanking them, too, because I realized I was alive. I started to feel better. I was able to transfer myself onto the at the cath lab onto the table without a problem. Talk to the talk to the docs, make some jokes. And 45 minutes later, I was in the ICU. I had an 80 percent blockage in my lad and they put two stents in. That was that. That was the first one. The second one was the end of August. We were driving. And unfortunately, I went into cardiac arrest while driving. My wife steered us into the into a cattail marsh and some bystanders did CPR on me. And I got airlifted back to the university. Uh, they, they brought me into the cath lab and everything was fine in my arteries. So it was some kind of electrical problem that caused the second, third and fourth. So right now I'm on a pretty heavy duty regimen of meds. And I've got an ICD in, which took me out of the last two. So uh, all in all, I'm, I'm pretty damn happy that I'm here. We are delighted that you are here. And, and I think one of the immediate takeaways I clocked there was the point about the first sense to return is hearing. And, and I think we've had this discussion before, Hillary, that as the medic in the truck, you have to be careful what you're saying because they can hear you before they can see you and everything else. And, 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 and that's a point very well made. Yeah, and I'm just glad to know that my patient is okay with the F-bomb because I might drop one or two or three in the back of the truck as well. Wayne, your your story about the first two what before you got your ICD really speak to the value of bystander CPR. We know that 70% of cardiac arrests occur in the home and yours did the first time and then in the car the second time where you happen to have a nurse behind you and a guy with an AED nearby who uh, waded into the marsh and saved your life. Do you think as a survivor of cardiac arrest, do you think that, you know, teaching your family, having people around you who, and being near a dying of fire um, is what led to your survival? Because imagine if you were at home and your son or your wife were there and they didn't know CPR, Where, what would we be doing now? I'm very fortunate to have, have a, you know, everybody around me on those first two events, I had people that knew how to do CPR. We live very close to Edina Fire. So had they not done CPR, it probably would have been two to three minutes of downtime prior to their arrival. Well, it was three minutes from the time my wife called 911 till they arrived on scene. But, you know, that's three minutes. That's critical three minutes of blood flow to the brain. I think the biggest thing is for people is, is to not be afraid of doing it. From what I hear you know, anecdotally is people are afraid they're going to hurt someone. Well, you know, you're not going to hurt anybody by doing chest compressions. Yeah, you may break their sternum, you may fracture something, but that's a lot less painful than death, so to speak. And I think that's an important point to make to those that are hesitant. And uh, we often, back in Richmond, we used to roll out, excuse, excuse me, the being so basic, we used to roll out our cardiac survivors to brief people, listen, would you, what would you rather have, a broken rib or be here? And the answer, of course, is broken rib every time because we encourage people not to worry about that. And, and by the way, as a bystander, you're not going to be sued, taken to court and experience some sort of litigation. Those were the two kind of FAQs that we had to deal with and actually having a survivor to come in and say, listen, I would rather you crack my rib than just stand off in case you're worried about cracking my rib. And I think also you had the full range of treatments and also the chain of survival worked for you. And I mean, that's fantastic. And the key thing here is that uh, everything happened seamlessly and so smoothly and all the way through to ECMO. It, it reminds me of my good good friend, Dr. Joe Onato, 
who had exactly the same journey, I think, that you did. And uh, I'm so pleased that you're here to, to tell the tale. Yeah. And Wayne, now that you've been a patient, at least twice, if not four times, but you've been a patient of EMS and you've been with your firefighters there and you, and you know how we roll and what we do. How do you change your messaging now in terms of thinking kind of before you had your own cardiac arrest and after, knowing that, that this is survivable, knowing that when the chain comes together, people can survive. I've attended a lot of trainings where survivors come and talk and they're very empowering and very inspiring, but I sometimes get distressed because we go back to our agencies and cardiac arrest seems to kind of continue to be, uh, it's only 10%. There isn't much of a chance that this guy's going to survive. And it continues to not be thought of as survivable. So how do you change that messaging now? That's really part of your life's work at this point. I think probably one of the big things with that is, you know, in, in my career, my 25 year career in fire and EMS, you know, it was so rare to see a survivor come back. And so people get used to that mindset that they're not going to see people survive. And part of the problem with that is when we get a call for a cardiac arrest or one down or something like that, there's so many variables that go into that we can't affect survival, you know, that affect their survival, but that we can't do anything about unknown downtime, comorbidities, all kinds of things. So I think probably the biggest thing is when we do have a witness to rest or we have somebody with a, you know, they're still viable, we, we need to start thinking that people are more viable than they are. Even when they're in asystole or PEA, some of the things we're starting to see with resuscitation research and head up CPR and the positioning, we're starting to see people survive those conditions. And when I started, if you put the monitor on and they were asystole, it was you just knew you were just going through the motions. And we don't realize that that's not the case any longer. And I think one of the things that's going to change some of that is all of the wearable technology that people have. As that advances over the next probably five to 10 years, I can see where people will, you know, where the device will call 911, you know, not just if you fall or something like that. It'll call if they're in VF or if they're in PEA or something. They'll start reading those rhythms. And we'll start to be able to get to people much faster. And I think that combined with the research and the stuff we're finding out now, we're going to see more survivors. I like your optimism and you're right to mention technology because not only do we have these amazing new devices and things that track everything we do, but anything from smart home speakers to watches to drones flying ADs to your house before the medics get there to Avive has a new AD that has a map on it to be able to take it to somebody that's after it's hanging on the wall. All of these technologies can contribute to the fact that these are happening in the home most of the time and that um, there may not be someone there who knows how to do CPR. So combined with telephone CPR, combined with awareness of the importance of defibrillation, early defibrillation and early compressions, and then getting that EMS team in there like you had with the Adina Fire group coming in and giving you this amazing new technology of head up CPR, the bundle of care, the ITD, all those things working together, including maybe ending in ECMO, those things will perhaps change the way we think about cardiac arrest. Joanna, tell us about the work you're doing in your lab and how we got to this thing called head up CPR, if you can describe it for us. Yeah, absolutely. And first, I just want to say thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to join all of you. 
So really our work in in our animal laboratory and now humans, it's all in regards to perfusion during resuscitation. And so this is the overarching goal. And and I consider myself an emergency physician and a resuscitation scientist. And I'll study whatever I can study, whether it's a pig or a person or whatever we can feasibly do, um, because we're trying to really just enhance perfusion during a low flow state like cardiac arrest or no flow state and trying to get someone back. And so, you know, I was I was going to play off of Wayne's comment. It's not just the VF patients that we want. We want the PEA asystole. We want everyone that we can get. And I really think about VF. We know that it's associated with coronary artery disease and things like that. I also think about it as a marker of perfusion. And people forget, you know, just because you're an asystole doesn't mean that you can't flip into PEA or you can't flip into VF, right? People didn't read the textbook. We try to classify them, <laughs> but people's hearts can do whatever they want. You know, like I uh, last summer, I had a guy who was shot and he bled out in his belly. And so we did a thoracotomy on him and his heart was empty. We started giving him blood, did some aortic compression and his heart, we're doing internal massage in his heart. And then what do you think his heart did? It started fibrillating because we were perfusing it. And then I could shock it him out of it. And we got him upstairs to the OR. So I just want to emphasize that VF, I always tell my residents, it's a marker of perfusion. If you have VF in front of you, you have to attack it. It means it's one step closer to getting a perfusing rhythm. So what we do in the lab is perfusion. And so building upon years of research, Head Up CPR came in as a new chapter, I guess I should say, where I was kind of introduced at the same time. So my mentor is Keith Lurie, who invented the impedance threshold device in something called active compression, decompression, CPR. That device combination was introduced to the market, I think like in the early 2000s. And then the rescue trial happened where that device combination um, was compared to standard CPR in a prospective randomized trial and showed a survival benefit a hospital discharge with that device combination. And we can get into the nerdy specifics of that if you want, because that's what I do. So, but I'll gloss, I'll give a bigger history. So in context, that, that device combination is, is creating a vacuum in your chest and it's sucking blood essentially back to your right heart in order to provide preload to propel forward. And it's also creating or generating forward blood flow. So in animal studies, it shows that device combination has improved vital organ blood flow, including um, cardiac and cerebral blood flow. In people, it shows that neurologic survival benefit. And so it's also maintaining a better mean arterial pressure. That was the background when Dr. Lurie visited Korea to see his daughter, I think. And his colleagues there said, hey, we have this problem. Can you help us with this problem? Everyone who lived in Korea, who who lived above the 10th floor um, of these giant high-rise apartment buildings, had really dismal cardiac arrest outcomes. And so there's this separate question of should they stay on scene or not, but they were electing to, to transport them. And so the question was, if someone's in active cardiac arrest and you have a tiny elevator and you can't transport them in the traditional supine and flat position, should you transport them like tilted upwards or downwards? And so that spawned the initial animal study where um, pigs were underwent a series of positions, you know, flat 30 degrees upwards, tilted upwards and 30 degrees tilted downwards. Lo and behold, um, the animals that had the 30 degrees of upward tilt had improved cerebral perfusion pressure, lowered intracranial pressure, improved cerebral blood flow, 
that really spawned our whole research path from there. And that was back in 2014. I have a a couple questions. So first is, as an educator, when I talk to my students about the science behind cardiac arrest, one of the things, of course, that comes up in any talk about science is how do we get this data? There's no chance we're ever going to have randomized controlled trials on cardiac arrest patients, probably. So why pigs? Talk about the anatomy and the choice of that animal, because I think it's important to understand why they are a good proxy for humans. Not all cardiac arrest research uses pigs. Some animal labs use, I think, rodents, um, rats and mice. So you've got different models. We prefer a large animal model because we feel it's the most translatable to humans. Let's say you needed a new heart valve and you didn't get a mechanical valve. You might get a porcine valve, a pig valve. So the cardiovascular system of the pig is considered to be the most similar to humans. And so obviously we can't just test out hypotheses and new devices on humans, that's not ethical, right? And there's no way to obtain some sort of consent from someone in cardiac arrest. So there needs to be um, a preclinical translatable model. Our lab has also gotten into testing a lot of these devices on human cadavers as well, which we feel is a valuable additional step when developing these types of technologies. But we've been using pigs for, I think, over for decades in our lab with with good results. That's how the ACDITD combo was developed. And this is how now our head up CPR and neuroprotective bundle has been has been developed. So we've heard this phrase neuroprotective bundle, and it's important to talk about the importance, of course, of uh, survival with um, a CPC score of one or two with the cerebral perfusion and ability to walk and talk and kind of go back to your normal life like Wayne has. How is it that this head up model, if you can explain the actual kind of geometry of it, how is this head up model uh, leading to what what you think is this higher level of neurological intact survival? So our goal during CPR is to provide heart or blood flow to the heart and the brain, and that's it. And so I think traditionally, some patients, for whatever reason, their anatomy is adaptable to traditional CPR, and some people wake up, but the majority do not, right? This device combination, so with ACD, ITD, CPR, you're generating a really good baseline mean arterial pressure. You're generating really good blood flow. With head up CPR, so the concept of elevating the head to reduce intracranial pressure is not new. This is something I learned when I was a medical student. And I suspect probably your medics would learn if you have someone with a neurosurgical emergency, non-traumatic, you sit them up, right? You sit them up in order to decrease their intracranial pressure and enhance that venous drainage from the head and the neck. And so it's the same exact concept, except we have the added problem of no beating heart. With ACDITD, we can generate a good enough pressure to get that benefit of decreasing the intracranial pressure while we elevate the head and thorax. That's the basis of how this is working. Let's just uh, take a moment, Hillary, to uh, cut in with our mid-show read from our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor, and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. 
Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And also, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So we move up the searchability scale. And also, you can follow us on pretty much any platform from Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. Also, coming up, if you're listening to this kind of live, next week, which is October the 20th and the 21st, we will be taking part in the Take Heart America conference. Uh, The event will be broadcast in two parts from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time on October the 20th and the 21st. Then the theme of this conference is Exploring the Realities and features 25 speakers, including Wayne and Joanna. And it's being recorded and presented uh, by Prodigy. And so if you don't get a chance to attend that live, then of course it'll be in the catalog and you can watch it back later. It's absolutely free, as is the CAPSI credit. And so this is going to be a global foam med event, I think, hashtag med Twitter. And we're looking forward to hearing you guys. And so please tune in or watch it back. Hillary. Great. Wayne, at the conference next week, you're going to be talking about this bundle and implementing it in, in your own agencies or giving advice about how to implement it. Carry less, do more. Richfield Fire, where you were the fire chief before you had to retire for medical reasons, is using this bundle, was using it before your cardiac arrest, and the Dyna Fire, of course, used the bundle on you as a patient. Talk about, as fire chief, how you implemented it, what you learned in terms of best practices. We know sometimes implementing any new protocols, procedures, technology devices can be fraught with uh, difficulty if people are resistant. Talk about what you learned in implementing this bundle. What we did at uh, Richfield, an individual from Advanced CPR, the manufacturer of the Eligard, came to us and it was an individual that uh, he was a former Hennepin paramedic, Hennepin healthcare paramedic. We've known that person for years and years and years. We've worked together and said, hey, here's this new thing. I really think you guys need to take a look at it. And it's a pretty large piece of equipment. And one of the things I've come to realize over my career, I call it Wayne's rule of thirds. You have a third of your people will adopt it, no problem, be supportive. A third will be against it, and a third really don't care either way. So for us, what we did was we had them come in and show the research that Dr. Moore and Dr. Lurie had conducted and showed them the benefit of the head-up positioning, how it basically brought things back to almost normal perfusion and pressure levels in the brain. From a firefighter standpoint, we like to keep things pretty simple. We are actually incredibly intelligent and problem solvers, but a lot of times we boil it down to something very simple. And, And what we told, what everybody realized is when you're flat and you're doing compressions, you're basically getting a venous wave and an arterial wave colliding in the brain, and that's not good. And when we raise the head up, we drain that venous blood out of the brain and we get back to normal. So we put the, the neuroprotective bundle on the, on the rigs. The first save we had 
was at a group home and the crew went in, they put it on. And about a minute after the ROSC was obtained, one of the staff members showed up with the DNR paperwork. So, you know, a little bit of a different take on it, but, you know, if somebody's at a DNR state, the, the, the level of their health is probably pretty significantly compromised. And so for us to get somebody back like that, that was a pretty much an amazing save. And everyone at the, the department kind of looked at each other and was like, are you kidding me? Then what we did was we started looking at how do we deploy this, this bundle? And one of the things we thought about is why don't we bundle everything together? And so in the, in the Eligard, we turned around and put in the ITD, the rescue pump, the iGel, the mega mover pre-positioned, all the equipment we needed to work that arrest was bundled into the Eligard case. And so we, the two first two firefighters on scene walk in with an AED, that bundle of equipment along with a Lucas. And then the rest of the equipment ends up showing up with the subsequent re- arriving units. As a researcher, the, the thing that is the most interesting to me about your first cardiac arrest, Wayne, is the fact that you remember it. That's the thing that is telling me like, wow, our perfusion was fabulous, <laughs> right? The perfusion you got and we helped develop, like that was exactly what we are, are going for. And so I think we're going to see hopefully more of those types of stories. Yeah, I think one of the things they talk about at the conference next week is having to start thinking about sedating people and the proper way to do that, you know, when they're coming back while they're still not necessarily, they're still pulseless or they're still in some type of arrhythmia. Right. And we have to be very worried about people like you, Wayne, who wake up and start dropping F-bombs. So sedation is important. Yeah, you got to make sure the radio is not keyed when that happens. And, and cerebral perfusion is key. I always remember, again, I mentioned my good friend, Dr. Joe Onato, when he came back to us, came back to work, you know, I, I kind of cursed because he remembered the things I'd hoped he'd forget. You wanted him to have neuroprotective amnesia that really was was Rob Lawrence protective amnesia. Let's just talk about, you know, the why should departments do this? Yeah, let let me take you back 10 years when my my organization did not take part in some of these trials for mechanical CPR because we refused to randomize. And obviously, eventually, some of these trials were stopped because the results weren't going the way the manufacturer, let's say, wanted them to go. The answer was, this is as good as the best manual CPR. And then, of course, what happened next? Pit crew CPR. We got into a drill. We got into a routine. Obviously, we solved that. So why should we do reverse Trendelenburg CPR on the patient? You know, convince the skeptics. I think that's kind of where we're at at this moment. So we're very much in, in Wayne's rule of thirds right now. We, so we do have some preliminary human data, which I've presented at the AHA last year and have data coming up for this year. And then I'll present some of that at Take Heart America next week. And so we have an initial data set of 227 patients. Some context to this, as the head up CPR device was coming on the market in spring 2019, I, as a researcher said, hey, we need to make sure we study this. So it's an FDA approved device. So it's on the market. Anyone can go to the company and say, I want to buy this device. And so I wanted to know what is happening to people when they use it or how are they using it and what's happening to our patients when they when they get it. We just asked whoever, whatever service, you know, first responder service or ALS service, hey, can you just send us essentially what you're sending to CARES, CPC score, survival to hospital, admission, initial rhythm, these basic demographics, that type of information. 
And then we wanted to know device specifics as well. If you used it, what was your feedback? When did you put it on the patient? This kind of thing. Very interestingly, what we found is that there appears to be a time-dependent effect of this of this bundle. And I think it makes a lot of sense in retrospect because there's a therapeutic window for most interventions, right? We know things like the faster you defibrillate someone, the better they're going to do. Time to defibrillation matters. Time to giving TPA and stroke matters. Time to getting someone to the cath lab matters. And so it makes perfect sense that this type of any new technology, you know, maybe the faster you apply it, the better your, your patient's going to do, especially in a dire state like cardiac arrest. And so we've, we were seeing these incredible saves, specifically by Edina Fire. And Wayne might have been one of their initial data set um, patients. I can't remember now. And we were seeing these incredible stories, you know, people remembering their resuscitation and and things going just fabulously, better better than our wildest dreams. And then in contrast, we had these lower performing sites that when we go back and look at the data are getting on scene, you know, just around the same time, the response time is similar to, to Edina and higher performing sites, but their time to getting someone on the device was slower. Outcomes of ROSC and even um, neurologically intact survival or survival to hospital discharge were lower. This kind of spawned our our thought process about why, how is this the best, how, what's the best way to apply this and, and who should be carrying this? Is this one device for on an ALS supervisor truck or is this a device combo that, that every ambulance should carry or every fire truck should carry? And so what a Dyna Fire does is they have three little bags they have, or, or big bags, <laughs> bigger they have one is an automated CPR device machine, right? A backpack. They have a head-up device backpack, and then they have their defibrillator. And in the head-up device backpack, they've organized it so that there's a supraglottic airway in there and a bag valve mask, uh, ITD, um, all the things that they'll need during the initial phases of the resuscitation. And they don't have a stretcher. They just take those three things and they run in there, start manual CPR, get the patient on the AED, get an airway started get them on the device, and they're going full steam ahead. And so our initial data showed incredibly high rates of ROSC with this device combination of 227 patients. Our overall ROSC rate was was above the CARES average. But then when you look on a minute-by-minute basis, the, the ROSC probability for our, our shock algorithm starts at around 100% just a couple minutes after the 911 call. And then our um, non-shock algorithm started about 80%. Just a couple minutes after the 911 call, which which is, is has really not been reported as I've been searching the literature for ROSC in particular. As we are moving forward now with our analyses, we looked at the same data set, but we did something called propensity matching, where we had a very intelligent statistician match up controlled CPR patients from previous NIH-funded trials, the rescue trial the Rock Primed study, and then the Rock Alps study. And so we took over 5,000 patients from those studies, matched them up to to our registry controls, or those controls to our registry patients. And then we're showing improved rates of survival at hospital discharge when the device is placed within the first, I think, 15 minutes of the resuscitation. That's a pretty incredible data, Joanna, that we certainly have seen the benefits of doing things like staying on scene and getting there quickly with the defibrillator. I know in my own agency, 
and and in my practice, even 10 years ago, we used to bring everything in, you know, caught everything and with the mechanical CPR device, we brought that in, thought that was going to be, as Rob said, the lifesaver that it ended up being a little bit different than what we thought. And now it's the most important that you send someone in with a defibrillator and a pair of hands and maybe an airway. So things change, they change slowly in EMS, but once we start to see these outcomes improve, that's what's exciting. And a little known fact that Rob shared with us earlier has to do with some other data that Mickey Eisenberg in Seattle came up with years ago that is, has informed that very strange number of seven minutes, 59 seconds. Rob, tell us about that. Well, it sort of comes back down to in, in your EMS system, you have the uh, the response time requirement of uh, eight minutes or 7.59 or whatever it is. But it came back from the work in Seattle of uh, Eisenberg, Cummings, et al., that pretty much said if you, and it's based on some pig research and obviously research from the King County system, that if you have uh, BLS within eight minutes and uh, ALS followed on in four minutes, and I think the research said something like 43% of those patients will survive. That then led on to, of course, the cardiac survival rule that said, you know, for every minute of delay, survivability reduces by 10%. And that pretty much set the standard. And I came, of course, from the UK, and we looked at the same research, and the national standard was seven minutes, 59 seconds to arrive for a category A or life-threatening call. And so this research kind of set up the ambulance service response time targets. And, and, and what they said was that this is, of course, the worst case scenario. This is a life-threatening scenario. So if we can do that for cardiac arrest, and if we set our system up to respond in that way, then the rest will follow. And that's kind of where we came from. Now, of course, fast forward now to where we are today. And there's a lot of discussion about do we have, therefore, to have red lights and sirens for everything? Do we have to be there for, and we always talk about the EMS euphemistic stub toe, do we have to be there in eight minutes or whatever on lights and sirens? And so there's some so a little bit of common sense taking place about the lower acuity stuff. But the research is still the research for life-threatening. Even in the UK, when they changed the response time standards to say, yes, we have to have some time-based response time standards, but we also have to look at outcomes. And of course, in the terms of cardiac survival, then yes, there is a time-based response and you throw everything at it. And of course, the in the UK, for example, first responder isn't four guys on a fire truck. It is literally the postman on his bicycle with a defibrillator in the back that will arrive in the community within a minute. We talk about Hadzala and our good friend Dov Maisel over in Tel Aviv. They will get anywhere on a moped in three minutes because, of course, it's the key thing uh, is to get there and do something. But, of course, it all came from that. And we'll save uh, lights and sirens use for another episode, Rob. But absolutely, the education factor there is so important, and especially educating the leaders. Speaking of, of leaders... Wayne, your survival from cardiac arrest and your description of your chest pain and ignoring it, that's not an unfamiliar story to firefighters and EMS providers um, across this country. And your important work continues with the Minnesota Firefighters Initiative. And I'd love to have you talk about sort of this attention that you're paying with the initiative to things like cardiac disease and uh, obviously the fact that sudden cardiac arrest and cardiac disease cause more first responder deaths than any other type of medical problem, and especially more than uh, dying in a fire. Um, what is the initiative doing and what are you working on? So the Minnesota Firefighter Initiative is a nonprofit that was founded in 2016 by three chief officers in the Minnesota Fire Service. And the primary goal was to educate firefighters in the areas of mental health, 
you know, slash emotional trauma, cancer, and cardiac, the things that kill firefighters. So the organization does education, advocacy, and research in those three areas, emotional trauma, cardiac, and cancer, trying to educate firefighters on how to mitigate those hazards. One of the things being a firefighter, there's a moral imperative to what we do. People pay us to go into those hazards and they expect us to put our lives on the line. But that doesn't mean we can't do our best to mitigate, you know, the issues that we're exposed to and the potential resultant health issues like what I ended up with. You know, we want people to have a nice long career. We don't want them to end up, you know, dying of cancer in their 40s or 50s or, you know, having a cardiac arrest at 55 and and having their career ended. We'd rather have people, as I've always said to my folks, I want you to have a really nice long retirement because you spend a lot of nights, weekends, holidays away from your family. And that's that doesn't matter whether you're a career firefighter, a volunteer, or paid on call. We all spend a lot of time away and we want we want them to be healthy while they do it. So one of the things we've done is we've partnered with Take Heart America on the Hearts on Fire initiative. And what we're since my case, we've realized that the whole neuroprotective bundle of head up CPR and the impedance threshold device and and a superglottic airway and active compression, decompression, CPR. The best way to have a firefighter survive one of those sudden cardiac arrests is to have that stuff in place on a fire engine. Every neighborhood, you've got a fire engine there. And typically, firefighters, fire is the first EMS unit on scene in a lot of communities before ALS ambulances get there with the paramedics. So we felt that if we could do that, For the firefighters, it would also be there for everyone else in the community, and we'd have a win-win. Great. You mentioned Take Heart America. Let's just uh, do a reminder for everybody that uh, next week, the 20th and the 21st, an absolutely free event covering everything we've talked about today and much, much more. And let me, Hillary, do a little bit of name dropping over who's on to, uh, Take Heart America next week. Off the top of my head, Lurie, Pepe, Augustine, Crow, Antivy, Jew, Banerjee, Miramontes, of course, more, and Kiwich, and many, many more. And we're looking forward to that. And visit takeheartamerica.com. Org if you want to see who's speaking. As I say, it's going to be carried on Prodigy, and eventually you'll be able to watch it back if you missed it. But the most important bit is if you need your CE and your research, this is an amazing conference to attend. A, because it's an amazing conference to attend, and B, you're going to get CE with it. So over to you, Hillary, for your final thoughts. I want to hear, Joanna, what your thoughts are for the future. What's next for you, maybe in the next months, years, or even longer down the road? Where are we headed? How do you feel? Tell us about your optimism and and really making this move the needle of the 10% much higher than than it is now. Yeah, I'm incredibly optimistic. You know, when I I present this data at EMS conferences, I have a lot of older medics who come up to me and they say, you know, we used to just do CPR for the family. (laughs) And and I'm I'm just blown away by that statement because that's never a concept that ever has entered my mind, you know. Instead, you know, I'm teaching our residents and EMS providers to attack every cardiac arrest you see in front of you and try to get that person back, especially if it's a shockable rhythm. There's no reason that person can't come back. I'm incredibly optimistic about it. And, you know, we see this 10% number, but we see, you know, looking at our head up CPR data um, or, or our, our, our neuroprotective bundle data, within, especially within the first 10 minutes of survival, our, our survival rates are much higher than that. And so I think it, we need to start looking through these pockets of data, finding where people do the best and trying to 
grow that and, and understand what's happening there and try to apply it to everyone. We're all wearing an Apple Watch that knows we go into VF and it calls 911 for us and everyone gets on and everyone's carrying a neuroprotective bundle and gets to the scene within 759. <laughs> you know, that's that's a pretty cool setup there, you know, especially if you have someone next to you who knows how to do CPR. Our immediate next step with our research is we're doing a more refined look at our registry data where currently the sites that are using the neuroprotective bundle, you know, when you buy this device, you get initiated <laughs> and to the uh, neuroprotective CPR bundle. And so we say, this is the thought behind it. We want you to get this device on as fast as possible. If you're just going to buy one device for, for your system, you might want to consider getting more or adding to it because we want to get this device on as truly as fast as possible. And so we're analyzing this next set of data where these sites are, are striving to get it on as fast as possible. You know, as a, again, as an educator and someone who's really passionate about resuscitation, I've always, this has been one area of EMS that's always been really important to me personally. I'm very hopeful to see all of the things politically and bureaucratically that are happening, like uh, the majority of states now in this country require learning CPR as a high school graduation, part of your graduation requirement. But, you know, for us in the chain of survival, a little bit farther down the chain, us in EMS and and the work that we do as first responders, we just have to change the mindset. We have to change the narrative. We have to start in the classroom with our brand new green EMS providers and tell them that this is a survivable condition and that it's worth trying as hard as we try on every other call and that um, we should respond to sudden cardiac arrest patients with as much passion and hope to make a difference as any other high acuity call. And our friend Wayne is living proof of that. So before we go, the question that everyone always asks us is, how can we get in touch with you? So uh, Joanna, how can we get in touch with you? I guess email would probably be the best means of communication. And you can email me at the hospital. It's Joanna, J-O-H-A-N-N-A dot more, M-O-O-R-E at hcmed.org. Excellent. And Wayne? Email also will be the best method, wkewich at minfireinitiative, W-K-E-W-I-T-S-C-H at mnfireinitiative.com. And everything we've talked about today in terms of dates, times, places, and links will be in the show notes. And so that's all for today from the EMS Educator Podcast. I've been Rob Lawrence, and you have been... Hillary Gates. So until next time, bye for now. <laughs>